sorry, of the genotonic show. Apologies. I'm just going to. Okay, Rob has got a bit of a cold and he's coughing all the time, so he has to mute himself. So let me quickly say hi then. Um, the, the funny thing is that I came to get interested in Islam a couple of years ago when I was in the Middle East. And I thought after reading, you know, the usual thing, Quran, and then realizing it's not everything, then going for the hadiths and then uh, finding out what sunnah actually means and then going for the tafsirs and then going for the different um, experts and the different, um, well, so-called scholars, I found that most of what I was hearing was actually political. So I thought, why is everybody so bent on making Islam a religion, spiritual religion only, um, when maybe the Sufis are doing that, but the rest is not? And then I came across your channel, and I found that you are making a lot of sense. And I've always wondered, why is it that so, so few people um, recognize this, and this is why I think it's really great of you to come here and give us an introduction on, on your take on what Islam is. Well, thank you. Uh, my take on Islam is, is that I interpret it through its doctrine, the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. Briefly, most people think that Islam is a religion founded on the words of the Quran. But if you accept that for the moment, you'll discover there's not enough in the Quran to practice the religion. That is, none of the five pillars can be explicitly practiced on what's in the Quran. So where do we find out how to, what the hell to solve this problem? Well, the Quran has 91 verses in it which state that every Muslim must imitate Muhammad's words and actions. And we find his words and actions in the, not in the Quran, but in the Sirah, his biography, and the Hadith, his traditions. So, having said that big mouthful, if you read these three books, you'll discover something about them, Quran, Sirah, Hadith, and that is... The majority of the text is devoted to the kafir, the non-Muslim, not how to be a Muslim. So this is what my first reading of it was uh, led me to see, and so I decided, well, let's call the part about Islam that deals with the non-Muslim, the kafir, political, because it's certainly not religious. Okay, then um, I have a book here, which is incredibly interesting because it sort of links what you just said, the sunnah, the seerah, and the Hadith with the Quran. And you, the author, have managed to come up with a chronology where what you are doing is you are taking the life of Muhammad and you are linking that to what the Quran says and you are giving some of it not the standard and traditional chronology where some experts say, well, this must be in Mecca, this must be in Medina. No, you go a take, you take a different approach where you are saying, let us look at the biography. In other words, what happened to Muhammad along his life and then see if we can find matching things that get somehow reflected in the Quran. And that is a very interesting approach, and I enjoyed that very much. What brought you on to that? Well, first off, I've been studying religion and religious texts um, since I was a teenager. So I'm very used to really reading religious texts. And when I uh, was, uh, I mean, I've studied Buddhism. I've studied uh, Torah at the Orthodox Synagogue. So I, as a child, was introduced to the reading of the Bible and it fascinated me. And so I've done re read religious texts all my life. So that's what I brought to the reading, which is a, a lifetime of reading religious text. And I want them to make sense. And so the thing about it is, is what makes sense, believe it or not, is a story. And that's the reason the Quran doesn't make any sense when people read it, is, is that it's been arbitrarily readjusted, sorted out primarily in the tradition of the longest chapter is first and the shortest chapter is last. 
Well, that works for some purposes, maybe, but it doesn't give you a story. What happens is if you take Muhammad's story and then hang the Quran off of it, everything in the Quran makes sense. And let, me, let me give you an example. If you, one of the things that people will find when they read the Quran is it's hard to read. And one of those things is, is that certain subjects just sort of lurch up at you all of a sudden. If you're reading along in the Quran, all of a sudden it says it was all right to burn the palm trees. And you go, wait a minute, palm trees? Where are the, who's palm trees? Why were they burned? Why was it okay to burn them? Or why would it have been wrong to burn them? But in Muhammad's day, that, that verse made complete sense because everyone knew that uh, shortly before that, Muhammad had attacked the Jews, couldn't drive them out of their fortress, and they were date palm farmers. And so he cut down and burned their date palms. So this, the local Arab said, this is a war crime. And he said, no, it isn't. And Allah gives him the reason why it was okay to do it. So what happens is, if you know what Muhammad was doing, the Quran makes complete and total sense. Okay, it does. Well, if you explain it like that, it absolutely does. But I hear a lot of people who say, why on earth would anybody do that? Especially Muslims don't really understand how it is that you come to that conclusion and how you are taking the the seerah the, the biography of muhammad how you can actually do that when there's so many sentences which are, are totally uh, well unrelated but if you look at it in context the lovely context then you see that um it is like that what would you say the repercussions are on both sides of the table what do you think muslims are saying after they hear what what your uh, thesis is and on the other hand how 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 do you Well, how do people react to a more skeptical? Well, first off, you've divided the room into the believer and the non-believer, that is the Muslim and the Kafir. And they have totally different views about what I do, of course. Kafirs frequently tell me, I now understand the Quran. It makes all sense to me because you've restored the story. By the way, the Quran, when you put it in the right time sequence, starts off with a hymn to God and ends with political domination of the world. So there's a vast epic story contained within the Quran. Now then, Muslims as such, uh, I, while they, I think they react to someone like myself in terms of like, what business is this is yours to mess with our sacred text, to my, which my response is, most of the Quran, the Sirah and the Hadith is about me, and so therefore, why can't I interpret it the way I need to? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, if you're talking about me, why can't I say what I think? So true. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> That's a very good response. And what do you get from that? Well, like I say, from the Kafirs, they say, thank you, I now understand it. It, it all makes sense. And from the Muslims, basically, uh, they range from calling me an idiot uh, to a fool to a uh, troublemaker to a, just a complete fool and an idiot, I guess is the most frequent summary. Then the liberals, and the, the rather the leftists in America say, no, 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 he's not an idiot. He's a hateful, Islamic, racist bigot. So uh, those are some of the comments I get. We have an organization in America called the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a left-wing organization worth a third of a billion dollars. And they publish a hate list. And I've been on their hate list for years now. That is, I'm a hater. you still got a YouTube channel? What? How come you still got a YouTube channel? Well, you know, I have less of a YouTube channel than what might appear to the eye. I now get notes from people which say, you know, I used to get your notifications whenever you posted a new event, new YouTube video, but I don't anymore. I'm getting the same thing from Facebook. People tell me, you know, I used to post your videos every two weeks on Facebook. How come you're not doing that anymore? Well, I am doing it, but you see Facebook and Twitter. I used to get a thousand new signups a month on Twitter. Now I get 300. 
the lords of Silicon Valley here in America have discovered have discovered my writings and they don't care for them too much. And so instead of throwing me out the door, they just reduce my oxygen. Oh, wow. Okay. Typical, isn't it, of um, people who are sort of critical. If you're on the far left in the U.S., then, um, you know, you're in the pound seats. If you're critical of Islam or other views, then, yeah, you, the social media definitely seems to be against you. Well, it's definitely against me. Uh, I created the term political Islam and have, have worked in the area using that term for 15 years, actually 16 years. And at first, if you Googled, literally use the search engine Google political Islam, I dominated the top three screens. That is, as you scroll down on the searches, I dominated. Now then, two thirds of those references are gone. They may say, well, Bill, you're just paranoid. But uh, Google has announced as a corporate policy that if you're friendly to Islam, they will elevate your ranking. And if you're critical of Islam, they will depress your ranking. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all with the, the policies that are going on there. Bill, tell us, because obviously Muslims are going to criticize you. And, and I did see in one of your videos, you talked about that you get far less sort of violent um, responses than, than other critics. Um, why do you think that is? Well, if you listen carefully to what I say so far, for instance, and what I write about, I just give the words of Muhammad and Allah. And I never criticize. I just say what it is. For instance, I don't say that it's right or wrong that 51% of the Islamic doctrine in the Quran, Sir, and Hadith is about the Kafir. I just state what it is. So if you listen carefully to what I say, I never criticize. I never condemn. I never ridicule. The most I may do on a YouTube video is to raise my eyebrow. But uh, I, my purpose is I'm a retired teacher. And so I see myself as a teacher, and it's not my purpose to show you the end result of the, the conclusion. I want to show you the facts and the process whereby I reach my conclusion. And if you disagree with that, well, let's start all, go, start all over again with a hypothesis and work our way through and find out why we differ from each other. So I don't come to condemn. I don't come to criticize. I, don't, I just come to explain what is and why it works that way. Basically, I say everything that a Muslim does has its, roots, has its roots in the doctrine, and here's the doctrine that he uses. I've never criticized Islamic State other than to say Islamic State has a very clear understanding of the political doctrine of Islam. So I think that helps. I'd never, in a strange way, there's two people, I live in the city of Nashville, Tennessee, and there's two people in this town who advocate for the Sunnah of Muhammad and the Quran, me and the local imams. <laughs> now, we have a different view on it, I might add. But let me explain something to you. There's three views of Islam. The first view is that of the believer. And let me give you an example. There was a time in which Muhammad stood up in the mosque and said, who will kill Ashraf, who has offended Allah and his prophet? I will, Muhammad, but first I will need to deceive him. May I do so? Yes, deceive him. So the man deceived uh, the poet. who That was his crime, was he had written a poem that Muhammad didn't like, and killed him. And Muhammad then praised him. Now then, I do not say that Muhammad did the wrong thing. I just say there's three views of what Muhammad did. One, he was killed a man who had offended Allah and the prophet, so therefore it was a glorious day. Then we have the modern scholars who say, well, we've all done bad things. Christianity's done bad things. Judaism has bad stuff. So let's forgive and forget and not worry about it. And then there's the Kafir view, which is my view, which is that was a, that was a moral crime. 
I'm all for free speech. And so that violates what I see as right political action, which is we can say what we need to say. So here we have three views, the Kafir view, the apologist view, and the Muslim view. These three views never align with each other, nor can they be made to do so. We just need to be clear where we stand, and that's where I stand. I stand from the point of the view of the Kafir. Yeah. yeah. Not that I'm right, and not that the Muslim is wrong. I just say I have my view and you have yours. But, Bill, don't you think if you have conflicting views, um, there's a methodology and only one view can be right or potentially they could all be wrong? And is, you know, don't, do you not think that there's a methodology that we can investigate which view is, is likely true um, over, for example, another view? Well, that's what I advocate for. Uh, let me give you an example further of my reasoning. Let's say that I say that jihad is, comes in several flavors and the jihad of violence is by far the dominant jihad. Now, Muslim believers say, oh, no, no, the, the jihad is the inner struggle, which we share with all religions. That is how to control your temper, how to stop smoking, that kind of thing, the inner struggle. Well, that may be. But what I find is if we're going to decide on whether Islam jihad is harmful or not, I go to the hadith, which are the traditions, and 21% of the hadith by Bukhari are about jihad. So I take those uh, hadith or traditions about jihad and sort them into two piles the killing pile, the killing jihad, and the inner struggle jihad. And if we do that, we'll discover that 98% of the hadith are about the killing jihad and 2% are about the inner struggle jihad. So therefore, we resolve the question. There's no contradiction here. It's 2% right to say that jihad is the inner struggle, but it's 98% correct to say that it's jihad is killing the kafir. So therefore, we try to include everyone's view and analyze it. It's, I use statistical methods a lot to resolve such issues. Yes, I noticed that. That's something that, that did impress me because I have four of your books, The Three Lessons, and the one that I recommend for people like myself who you know, don't have a lot of experience in Islam is the abridged Quran where you start, as you mentioned earlier, with you know, going in a sequential order uh, through his life and then inserting all of the verses. And I think in the one that I have, you just haven't doubled up on all the verses. So every single one has got its, you know, its single verse in the life of Muhammad. So it's easy, easier to understand and put into context. Well, when, when you read this, if you finished it, did you not find that it made sense? Yeah, it's much easier to Absolutely. understand. I mean, when I've picked up the original Quran, I'm like, this just starts randomly in one place with, you know, longest verses first. And as um, Stops has pointed out many times, it's got the first verse in there is not even part of it. It's just sort of more of a prayer. And then it goes to the shortest verses. And it's very difficult to follow that way. So let me ask you, then, how did you go about um, compiling that? Because that must have taken quite some time to kind of get the verse in order and, re and, and you know, research. When did Muhammad say this? Share a little bit on that, because I've always wanted to ask you how you came to create it the way you have. I cheated. <laughs> <laughs> there was a brilliant scholar in the early 20th century who did the work for me. He's a Dutchman, as I recall. And he did an extensive amount of what the proper order of the Quran was. And so I looked at it and realized that it correlated with the life of Muhammad. I said, I'm just going to, this man is a known scholar. I'll just steal his work and give him credit for it. Fantastic. Great. Well, that makes it a lot easier if somebody's already done all the hard work for you. Yes. Well, <laughs> one other question, because I know this is what will come up, you know, for Muslims. They will claim you're not a scholar. Now, of the quick count that I did on Amazon, you've got 26 books out. You've, you've studied this for 16 years in whatever way. Can you just share what you've done in terms of learning and understanding that? Because Muslims, when we speak to them, you know, you have to be a scholar. You have to presumably go to some 
you know, um, Muslim study place. So they don't seemingly accept people like yourself as scholars. <laughs> so maybe you can share a little bit of, you know, how you've come to know what you've done and, and the, the, the books you've read so that I can then pass this on or I can say, hey, people go and listen to the video. Here's what Bill says himself. And if you don't prepare to accept him as, you know, some sort of expert or scholar, well, that's fine. But, but maybe you can share from your own mouth. Well, first off, my study of Islam started uh, 43 years ago, uh, and I advocate this. I hold a doctorate in physics, and I, can, I challenge you to show me something I cannot read and understand. I challenge you to show me the verse in the Quran I cannot read and understand. I, cha- I challenge you to show me the hadith I cannot understand. I challenge you to show me the paragraph or chapter in Muhammad's life I cannot understand. So just show me what I cannot understand. I'd be interested to see this. Look, I'm an intelligent man. So are you. Anyone can, and by the way, since Islam claims to be a universal political doctrine and a universal religion, how can it be universal if you can't read it and understand it? Isn't that puzzling? Exactly. And besides that, half, half of the Arabs, uh, most Arabs are Muslim, and they have a high literacy rate. Now, so if we find an illiterate Arab, say an Egyptian, who is a believer in Islam, can we say he understands Islam? And therefore, you're going to tell me that an illiterate Arab can understand something that I can understand? I don't think so. Look, it's meant to be a universal doctrine. So therefore, when you tell me it can't be understood and it's about me, because remember, 51% of the text is about me. So when you tell me, sir, this is written all about you, but you can't understand it, I go, really? I don't (laughs) think so. Oftentimes, their response, though, is that you've got to understand it in Arabic. You've got to read it and understand Arabic in order to understand it, quote, properly. Well, the majority of the world's Muslims can't read Arabic. In Indonesia, they don't read Arabic. And besides that, the Arabic that the Quran is written in is, is sort of like, you're in England, right? Yes. Did you go to school long enough to go that you studied Chaucer? Well, I, from my accent, you may actually pick up that, although I live here, I was originally in South Africa. So no, I haven't studied Chaucer. Oh, no, we did. I had a great intellect. Had a great, anyway. Chaucer was written some centuries ago, and you can read it and, and tease out the meaning of it. But it's a very difficult English to read. Mm. And in the same way, the Arabic of the Quran is not the street Arabic in what you see on television. So it's been estimated there's fewer than 20 people who could write a full paragraph in classical Arabic. So even those when they say you need to understand Arabic, the Arabic you need to understand is classical Arabic, which is not the Arabic that's spoken on the street today. Right. So, but from your point of view, if you've got multiple translations, you can get a clear understanding of what's being said. Oh, goodness gracious. When I started this work, the web, by the way, the greatest imam in the world is Google. That may sound like I call him Imam Google. It used to be that the, when I started doing this intense study, which was on September 12th, uh, after 2001, because I'd studied Islam all my life in some mild way, but I decided that I had enough understanding to make it readable to the average person, which is what I set out to do. So now let's ask your question again. I forgot your question, sir. Oh, sorry. Um, the question is with the, the, the various translations, like I have five, oh, yes, yes, on, I can you then get a clear understanding of um, the Quran? Yes. Back to my point. What used to be that knowledge about the Quran was esoteric, but now then Google will give you the answers. There's many tra- translation services which will show you the meaning of any particular Quran verse in 10 different translations, 10 different translations. 
And if you can't get the drift of it in 10 different translations, you're not going to get it at all. Yes, understood. Do you refer to people or do, do you use other scholars or people, critics? Because I've been asked to ask you, what do you think of Ibn Warak? Ibn Warak is a great man, a wonderful human being. He is a remarkable person, a profound scholar. Have I said enough? Absolutely, and I agree with you. Yes, yes, yes. Um, also, he also has one other quality. He's not only intelligent, he is compassionate because he cares for humanity and he is brave enough to speak on his own. The man is an apostate and therefore qualifies under the Sharia to be killed. Yep. A remarkable human being. I've met him, by the way, personally. He's, he's very shy. Oh, really? Quiet. He's very quiet and shy. Wow. That must be interesting. <laughs> I'd love to be there. Well, it is. To see, here's a man who has sort of moved mountains. You'd expect some, you know, big guy. Uh, with, I don't know. You somehow another with a profound look to him or something. And he's, you would never pick him out of a crowd. You know, he's just, he's an ordinary person and very shy, almost timid, but a fabulous scholar. His book, Why I'm Not a Muslim, was one of the first books I read on Islam. It is still one of the best books written on the subject. Mm. By the way, since he's an apostate for Islam, how are you going to say, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about? <laughs> exactly. How did he know? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, talking of which, look at, look at Salman Rushdie. He, he's also not a huge character, right? I've never met him personally. No, but um, if you look at him. No, he does not appear to be a big guy. Exactly. <laughs> he doesn't look like he plays football. Oh, wait a minute. Wrong analogy. You have a different football. No, no, have a different football. Yeah. So what about um, Sufism? What do, what do you think about the, the opposite of uh, facts, the, the, the more spiritual side, not the political side? Well, I'm going to give you my first discussion of Sufism is it is, a, it is political in its nature. Look, when you read the Quran and the Hadith, the Islam has a, shall we say, a harsh edge to it. I think that's generous, but <laughs> justifiable. And when you... The, when Islam conquered many cultures, some of these cultures had a mysticism within them, mystical Islam, I'm sorry, mystical Christianity, mystical Hinduism, and Christo, mystical Buddhism. So when these countries were conquered, they in turn shaped Islam in their own image, which was putting a little goodness to it, if you will. Now, here's the trouble with Sufis. They come in all varieties. Do you remember Daniel Pearl? Perhaps he's an American, but he yeah, went yeah. to he went to uh, the Middle East, I believe Pakistan, to try to find uh, a Sufi master who was supposedly in charge of the 9-11 event. Well, he found him and he, he wound up being later cut into his arms, cut off his legs, cut off and his head cut off, buried in separate pieces. This killing was done by a Sufi master. So mm. let's not get the image that all Sufis are somehow or another cuddly and warm. They come in all flavors. Now, when I was 30 years old, as a young man, I st my first study of Islam was with a Sufi. I went to Sufi dances and uh, learned repetitions of sacred names of God. And, and so my first study of Islam was Sufism, Sufism. But the trouble with Sufism is, is there's some dark corners in it, which they don't want to shine a bright light on. And those dark corners are aspects of the Sharia. Now then, the Sufis that I studied with didn't even ask that you become a Muslim, so it was that diluted. So the term Sufism is a very broad category. 
Right. Okay. Because the couple that we've interacted with here are sort of more kind of spiritual versions are just totally ready. Rob, we're getting a lot of echo from you. Oh dear. <laughs> By the way, Bill, we've got we've got we've got a live chat running, okay, on YouTube, and people are asking questions there. Um, and somebody asked me to please tell you his name is Allah of all of things, of course. And he wants me to say that Allah is a big fan of yours. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, but now, um, serious question, contradictions in Islam, where do you ah. see the biggest ones there? Ah, This is where uh, my field of physics that I studied was quantum physics. And uh, I used to be an intelligent man. <laughs> <laughs> Are you fishing? <laughs> so anyway... Uh, Science has to deal with contradictions as well. And when I ran into the contradictions of Islam, for instance, part of the Quran, the early Quran written in Mecca has no jihad in it at all. The latter Quran written in Medina is 21% of it is jihad. So you ask yourself the question, which is the real Islam, the peaceful Meccan Quran or the jihad-oriented Medinan Quran? And people want to resolve this question with which is the right one or the real one. I instead stepped back and looked and said, you know, instead of trying to eliminate the contradiction, why don't we accept the contradiction and just say it is contradictory in nature? Now, this is true, for instance, in the study of, of reality. As a quantum physicist, when you ask the question, is matter energy or is it mass? And it turns out the answer is yes. Reality <laughs> is both energy and mass. And it, you get what you look for. That is, if you measure the mass of an electron, you'll find that. But if you try to measure the energy of it, you'll find that, but never the two simultaneously. And so I said, what we have here is a form of dualism in Islam. There's almost nothing in which does not contain a contradiction. Let me give you a hadith. Muhammad said, do not kill women and children. All right, so therefore in combat, you're not supposed to kill women and children. An admirable goal, which I advocate, by the way. But then again, when they brought in a new war machine, which could do mass killing, they said, but we may kill women and children. He said, they are from them. It is all right. So on almost every issue, we find that Islam has two views. And instead of asking the question, which one is the real one? I say they're both equally real and both are available for use. It's like having a sink with hot water and cold water. Which is the real water, the hot or the cold? Silly boy, they're both real. Use the one you need. Yeah, I and call so this, this Islamic dualism. Yes, precisely. And I just accept it. I do not try to resolve it because there is no resolution. It, it, you have what you need. And this contradiction is built into, as I mentioned, the Quran. The Quran in Mecca is a very different Quran from the Quran in Medina. Yeah. Which one's the real one? Well, they're both real. Use the so one you, you need. You accept that Muhammad existed? Ah. Oh. Now then we come to a difficult point in the scholarship. I do not, here's what I accept. That Muslims accept that he existed and that the, the shadow of his life is found in the Sirah and the Hadith. <laughs> okay. I accept the <laughs> hypothesis. Did you ever study geometry? Yes. No, well, I didn't study it, no, but uh, yeah. Anyway, I accept the hypothesis. Now, what is the reasoning that follows from that? Yeah. So, there we have it. Okay, thank you for that. <laughs> By the way, I love your little name of your show, Gin and Tonic, for it, because of its play on words here. And I see that from your logo, you do understand that a gin is a creature of. of by the way, did you know that jinns actually exist? And ask any Muslim, he will tell you that. There's even a chapter in the Quran called the jinn. Yes. 
We have we sometimes have Muslims when there's a glitch, when there's there's some sort of a you know this this difficult um, digital war room or something like this. There's a jinn standing on the line, of course. <laughs> you know, jinns are made of fire, as I recall. Yeah, yeah well, smokeless fire, yeah, smokeless fire. So, exactly. Uh, um, do, do you mind if we hit you with questions like this? No, 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 no. Remember, I told you I was a professor. If they all go to sleep, <laughs> <they're all laughs> okay, great. Because this is an interesting one. This is also from our chat. Um, you use the word kafir a lot. Now, yes. We've been hit with all sorts of things and accusations and, and um, apologetics, of course, where kafir is actually the farmer who covers the, the field with soil and things like that. So there's nothing wrong with the word. I hope you disagree. Well, kafir means to conceal or cover up. That is true. I use the word because that is the original Arabic word to describe me. Most people describe non-Muslims as being, uh, oh, if they're esoteric people of the book, but very few would do that. Infidel is a common one, non-believer. But what I find is, is that the kafir is treated so badly that non-believer, which is a neutral term, does not apply. The Quran defines the kafir. And by the way, I come back to this again. The original Arabic word to describe the infidel is kafir. That is the word. Now, the reason I like to use kafir is, number one, it's precise, and it also does away with, it serves a political function. Muhammad dealt with pagans, Jews, uh, and Christians. Now then, if you, if you call them different names, you may see them as different categories, but when you see how he treated them, that is, they had to submit to Islam, they're all the same, and so therefore the word kafir unites the pagan, the atheist, the Muslim, the Jew, and not the Muslim, uh, and uh, Christian. So therefore, it is a more general word. The other reason I like to do it, use the word kafir is, is that in England, do you all know the term, the N-word? Of course. Well, yep. In America, we've got this magical word, N-word, which you can't say over the air or anyplace else. You only have to whisper it in a dark corner. Well, kafir is sort of the K-word, if you will. And so by using it, I let Muslims know that I know your little secret, that I am a kafir, and that, by the way, the most... Common Afri- the most common adjective of the kafir is kafir hajjiz, which is filthy kafir. Because why do they call the kafir filthy? Allah says in the Quran that the kafir is filthy. filthy. So I enjoy the use of the word because it's accurate, it's dead on, and I try to popularize it. And by the way, I've achieved a little bit of success. I'm a 76-year-old man and I always had a dream of adding a word to the language. Why, I don't know, but I just have. And if I could, re- if I could introduce kafir into the English language, I would, I would die a happy man. Uh, well, in South Africa, it exists and it's been in circulation for a number of decades. Do you know the history behind that? It's probably this. Because the funny thing is, when, okay, I, I, I went to school in Tehran, okay, so, so I speak a little bit of Farsi, and then I moved down to South Africa, and funny enough, you have the word Memsahib, for example, in different languages. And this is thousands of kilometers apart, and this is the same identical word. So I think kafir also is something like that. Kafir is a word, I think, now this is my private musings, is a word that was picked up by the Dutch in the East Indies. Exactly. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then made its way down south, yeah. Yes. And so it says they use the K-word, as, since the Muslims use the K-word as the N-word, when they moved to South Africa, they replaced the N-word with the K-word. That's my personal theory. I like it. Makes sense. Be- before we get to the two people questions that I have here, what is your take on abrogation? 
Well, it's built into the system. There are no less than three verses in the Quran which state that there is abrogation. Why do, they, why do Muslim apologists deny this? Well, I don't know. I, hmm, I, I guess there is a school of thought in which it's denied. I don't know. Because what you wind up with is you have contradictions within the Quran. And in Muhammad's day, the Muslims, of, I'm sorry, the Kafirs of Mecca said, Muhammad, last year you said this, this year you say that, this contradicts each other, which is the real one. And so on those three separate occasions, Allah, through Muhammad, releases the idea of abrogation, that the latter verse or the later verse is stronger than the earlier verse. Now, notice why it does not say abrogation does not mean the earlier verse is wrong or untrue. It is simply not as strong. So therefore, abrogation doesn't imply because if the earlier verse was given by Allah and Allah is the perfect being, God above all, how could he ever be wrong? You see the problem if abrogation can't, doesn't say it's wrong, it just says it's a better verse. Allah can replace one thing with something that is better. So they're both right, it's just that the latter one is better than the earlier one. Okay, so there's no compulsion, um, then a better version is kill them. Yes. See, that's <laughs> the unfortunate part here. All the Look, the early Quran, if only the early Quran had been written and Muhammad had stayed in Mecca, I would not be here talking to you today at all. Okay, because yes, of course. the Meccan Quran, I don't have any problem with it at all. I mean, it's actually this, the most beautiful, I have two comments about translations. The most beautiful part of the Meccan Quran, which are the short chapters in the end of the book, if you do it the standard way, that is you get the book from the bookstore, is quite beautiful. And uh, some of the four or five verse, they're like hymns of praise. But later they get sort of cut off their heads and cut off hands and feet on the opposite sides. And I'm like, ooh, that doesn't feel so nice to me. <laughs> so the latter is stronger than the earlier, which is the sad part about the whole business of Islam is, is that the harsher ones are the real ones, are the better ones, are the stronger ones. Okay. Okay. I have two people questions and then I'm going to hit you with your favorite question. Do you, or what do you think of, or have you met Tariq Ramadan? Oh, Tariq. <laughs> that boy's in a little trouble, yeah, I understand. <laughs> telling stories about him. Tariq Ramadan is the most clever debater of Islam that I've heard do so. He is very good. Interesting. Uh, he's quite clever at what he does, but, uh, Uh, I would like to meet him one day. I would love to personally discuss Islam with him. I don't know that he'd love to discuss it with me, but I would love to him because I see him as Islam's best advocate. Well, what about him? Honest representation. Some people say some things to Arabs and other things to non-Arabs, and so he's sort of two-faced. That's the commentary that some people have had of him. Well, of course he does. Okay. I mean, I, I expected that. I mean, the earliest I ran into that was with Arafat. Arafat would come to the United States and give one talk, and he'd go back and you do, and in Arabic he'd give another talk. Mm. So uh, this saying one thing to the Kafir and another to a to a believer is standard issue and expected. I just assume that. What about the scholarship of Karl Heinz Orlik? Not for, now. Who is this again? Uh, he's a he's a professor in Germany, uh, Karl Heinz Orlik. I don't know that I'm right familiar with him right off the top um, of my head. What is his merit? Let me just get the book here. Um, he writes, for example, Hidden Origins of Islam, and this one is with 
uh, Gerd Puin. He's also a professor on a German. Oh, Puin. Puin I I know of this man, but I, I'll just I'll plead ignorance. Puin is the guy who went to Sanaa to to uh, to do the manuscripts there. Ah, yes, yeah. Now I know who you're talking about. You, let's go back to Muhammad. Did he exist or not in the manuscripts? For instance, one of the myths about the Quran is is that it was only given in one. Well, it was given in seven dialects, but there's only one perfect copy. Well, it turns out that this is a favorite myth of Islam, but it's just certainly not true. There have been other Quran. As a matter of fact, that we know there are other Qurans because the Islam's own Hadith says so. Yeah, with twenty and and all sorts of different. Uh, sorry, with two hundred chapters and all sorts of things. Yeah, and and not only that, the, the part that got me was that Uthman, who was the Quran we have today, is Uthman's recension, to use the proper technical word, recension. B, he did such heavy editing that he produced a new edition. Yeah. After he produced the Almighty, all-knowing, present Quran we have. He then burned the source material. Now, what does that tell you when somebody burns the source material? It was all authentic. Let me, <laughs> but it was contradictory. We know that. Well, Bill, let me give you the apologist view. The apologist view is that the reason that it was burned is because they didn't want to have all these bits and pieces lying around. They just wanted to have one 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 version of the Quran that could be sent out to the entire world. So having scraps of it, almost as if it was pages lying all over the show, is just confusing. So let's just burn all of the because that was all the same anyway. This is what the apologists certainly over here say. It was all the same anyway. It was now just collated into a single book. So there's no point in having sort of spurious pages and bits and pieces of copies and so now we've got one book and we can just duplicate one book well you know the problem with that is and i like the way it sounds is that the story that's found in the hadith contradicts it it says there were many variations and there was arguments and debate as to which one was correct well after they talked to everybody and they presented their arguments uthman resolved all the arguments and destroyed all the ones that contradicted him so the, unfortunately the story itself says that there was variation You see, the Muslims used to rag on the Christians because they said there's variations in your Gospels. And the same with the Jews. There were minor variations in the text. And so they wanted to produce a text which was perfect. And so they did. They took all the, cut off all the bits and pieces that were not, quote, perfect, and uh, they got perfection. By the way, I thought this was Allah's business. <laughs> you which, which is, to your knowledge, which is the first complete Quran? Well, Uthman's recension, which was done 18 years after Muhammad died, that was the first complete well, we Quran. we don't have it. I mean, extant. Oh, well, I don't... I think there's been... The one in Sana, I think, is probably the earliest. But I'm I'm not a scholar of, of the... This is outside my area of expertise, really. Okay. I read about it, and I read books on it, but I'm not... I don't have the soundness of popping off and saying something wise. Yeah, because I went into the Tashkent one, and um, I was surprised to hear that it's not even complete, uh, even though Muslims will not admit this. And number two, there's a very, very clear error in in uh, one of the chapters where you have photographs documenting this. So I, I don't quite understand why Muslims still make that claim. Okay, but, but I have the biggest, or your favorite question, which is the biggest blunder of scientific nature in Islam? Oh, <laughs> I didn't know that was my favorite. I like the one where the sun sets in the muddy th the throne of uh, the throne of Allah in a muddy pond every night. I just think that was like uh, interesting. 
Is that your favorite one? What about all these other, I mean, there are so many scientific miracle claims. What do you think of those? <laughs> I just commented. Okay. <laughs> all right. I thought we're going to get a huge long explanation from you about this. All right. Then we'll go for the next one, the last one that I have. And if anybody wants um, any more answers uh, from Dr. Bill Warner, that please go away and ask in the in, in the chat. What do you think of this concept that uh, is called takia? Well, <laughs> that's one of those concepts. You when I first ran across, I was like. Really? I mean, remember, I come from the world of physics in which our dream is, is that the guy's not lying to me when he says he did the experiment. So, I mean, when I found out that deception was, was part of Islam, uh, it was just like, well, I'll come as close as I can to be negative about Islamic doctrine. I was appalled. And yet it is very clearly spelled out. I just quoted you a hadith. Who will kill Ashraf, who has offended Allah and his prophet? I will, Muhammad, but first I will need to deceive him. May I do so? Yes, deceive him. Here is the perfect human being, the divine human prototype, Muhammad, which is 91 verses in the Quran say that he's to be duplicated and admired and everything he did was in the right way. And here he is handing out advice to deceive a kafir in order to kill him. Mm, I don't like that. Yeah. And yet there is more deception in it as well. Another deception which is listed is that I don't, this was in the Sirah, and it, it takes place, I believe, in Ethiopia. And a man was being questioned about Islam, and he wanted to. Uh, let, me, let me not tell the story because I don't have all the details right. I'd rather be clumsy than wrong. But anyway, deception is used more than once. Well, there's a verse in the Quran in which Allah says that the Jews think they're deceiving me, but I, Allah, am the greatest of deceivers. Yeah. I thought, you know, I've thought about the, God a great deal. And yet I never came up with the idea that he was a great deceiver. I was very disappointing. Rob, yes. you got anything? There was one that I was interested in, but often Muslims say, hey, we are, you know, we're justified in fighting because most people, you know, if if they are threatened, they will defend themselves. We're not pacifists, which <laughs> I think clearly they're not. Um, what is your response when a Muslim says, hey, you know what? We only fight in defense. We never fight or we never go on the attack. We're never offensive. Well, you know, I say to them, let's study the career of Muhammad, who committed 95 acts of jihad in the last nine years of his life. 95 acts. So let's examine some of these. For instance, what were the Jews of Kaibar doing to hack off Muhammad? He had to travel nearly 100 miles to get to them. What about Muta, the, where he attacked the Christians in Syria? What were the Syrian Christians doing that he needed to defend himself against? So, and what really had Ashraf done, the poet, the Jewish poet who was killed because he wrote a poem? We say, well, he wrote a poem. I didn't like I could kill him. Let me tell you, the music business would change if you could do that. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And, and what about the, because you, you also did, if I remember, you did a, a wonderful video that showed the Muslim incursion into North Africa and into. Uh, ah, yes. 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 That was a fun piece of work. Mm. I mean, Could you share a little bit about that over, you know? Well, what happened was I read this wonderful book called The Rise of the European Economy, uh, 400 to 900 AD, and it was written, of all things, by a, a historian who said there is no story in this book, and it is not a history book in the proper sense of the word, but it is a history as dictated by archaeology. 
And so he was able to show that all this work that had been done around the Mediterranean was able to draw economic consequences of it. And all of a sudden I realized that when the Christian shipping went down from 100% to 10%, that this was under the influence of jihad on the Mediterranean. So I became fascinated by this. I'd suspected it was true. And it was also, I suspected that I'd been told a lie when I was told that the Dark Ages came about just because the Germans invaded the Roman Empire. That never made sense to me. So all of a sudden here we had an economic collapse. And, in the, and so that was what caused, in my opinion, the Dark Ages of Europe was this economic collapse. I mean, imagine you're in London, right? Yes. Imagine if 90% of all the plane flights in and out of London were canceled and 90% of the ships that come in and out of the British ports was, were removed. What would, happen to, what would happen to the economics of England? It would collapse. It would collapse. And so this is what happened in the Mediterranean. The jihad of the Muslims destroyed the Christian shipping. Khaldun, uh, Al-Khaldun, the great Muslim historian, said that Christians could not float a plank on the inland sea. They bragged about it. But one of the things I became fascinated by was this idea of using archaeology. And archaeology can be viewed not only as objects found in the dirt, but in terms of archaeology is another peculiar form of translation of ancient documents. And this man in this textbook, well, it's not a textbook, it's a 1,200-page it's book. And uh, he said that, anyway, the point is, is that there's many books, I'll get my tongue straight here in a moment, there are many books written on the subject of the Dark Ages, but none of them really seem to imply that Islam had anything to do with it. But I became curious about the battles that he referred to as, as sort of manuscript archaeology. And so he listed a whole bunch of them in his appendix which I had never seen before. I mean, most people, if they know anything about the history of Islam, know the fall of Constantinople, the invasion of by Tariq in uh, 711 in Spain, and maybe Lepanto, and that's it. Well, here was all these. And so I said, well, you know what? Let's try doing a research project. And it turns out that the Internet, thank goodness, was invented. And I was able to fill out this wars that Islam had fought against the Kafir. And I came up with 548 battles that Islam had fought against the Kafir over a 1,200-year period. And so then I was faced with how do we display this data because nobody wants to read a table of 548 battles. And so I came up with this idea of a dynamic battle map in which it unfolds in time, and each battle is, is given a little red dot when it happens. So you can literally see the flow of Islam into first Western Europe and Spain and then finally into Eastern Europe through Constantinople and provides a dynamic vision, which I think is very illuminating. Yes, I, I find that fascinating to watch that and to see how it progressed. But I think it's, you know, if people watch that, and perhaps we can find the link and, and, and let people know where that is. But but I think it's clear from that. I don't know how Muslims can still make the claim that Islam, particularly after Muhammad's death, was only a defensive religion. <laughs> that battle map kind of plays <laughs> havoc with that, doesn't it? Well, I never heard of the Spanish invading the Arabian Peninsula. No, I don't think so. Anyway, um, I, think that, I think that Muslims should embrace their history, whatever it is. And if they don't like that history, then get another history. See, the problem that it seems to be, Bill, is that they've had a collision with the West, and, and especially over here in the UK, because we have some a place called Speaker's Corner, which you may or may not be aware of, and other places. But this is an open-air area where people come and have conversations. And they're desperate to try and make it appear 
um, Western friendly because any of these things we are going to, you know, shudder at many of these things, slavery and, you know, marrying young people and defensive jihad and so forth. And so they do, they are desperate to try and make it appear this is not the case. And so they will say and appear apparently try and do anything to make it the case that this didn't happen the way, you know, history says or whatever the case may be. And so I think that's where the problem comes in for them. But you in the Middle East, I'm quite happy with that. But over here, no, no, obviously we can't have that because we would, you know, we would turn our backs on that instantly. Let me point out something to you. You and I are now talking on a popular radio outlet, media outlet, let's use a more generic term. We're doing something we just assume that it's happening. We don't pay any attention to it. This is the first time in human history when the facts of the doctrine of Islam and its history are well known to the common man. Until this day in time, and it's mainly because of the internet, knowledge about Islam has always been through Arabic scholars, Middle East scholars, and other such, and theologians. And now then, for the first time, what has happened is, is that the common man, the ordinary working guy, can re- buy books on the subject of Islam that he can now read and understand. Because the current generation of writers, such as myself, Spencer, and others, we write for the common man. We do not write for the esoteric professor at Don at Oxford or something. So what we're doing here is a new phase of history where for the first time, the average citizen can read and understand the doctrine of Islam and its history. This is a, this is a miraculous thing which most people don't even recognize has happened. Because previous to 9-11, the, the books were written with scholars, but they were not written for the ordinary person. Yeah, that's true. And I think for me, I'm much more interested in people who are not Muslims because they will potentially be less biased and more critical or at least analyze it, I would suggest, more openly than Islamic scholars because my, again, admittedly limited knowledge seems to show that Islamic scholars are only looking to confirm what they already believe. They're not looking to to critique it in the same way that you and, and others are doing. And so I'm, I'm much more interested in, in your critique because I think that's, in a sense, more honest because you're standing outside of the ideology and looking in and asking questions. When you're inside, they don't tend to do that in any any sort of way that I can see that's similar to yours or anybody else for that matter. And one of the worst of these apologists are those in the universities. Mm-hmm. I don't know about in, in England, but in America, the universities have become no longer they do. They teach debate. They teach ideology. Yep, same. We've got the videos here. I mean, you know, Stops will be critiquing some of them. They go around to the universities telling them what, you know, and they don't have, there's, the, the debates are very few here. So we know people personally that are Muslims that, that we don't hold in high regard, to put it mildly. And um, they go around and, and if you had to have a conversation with them, they would look, you know, with the greatest of respect to them, whatever that is, they would look like they are children having a conversation with you. And yet they're going around to, you know, universities you know, saying certain things. And when I've spoken to them and stops and other people, I mean, their level of knowledge is extremely low and, and this is what's happening at the moment. So it's a, it's almost like an ideological thing that they're doing. And they're all Sunnis. So they have a fairly, you know, what we would consider somewhat extreme view of Islam, although they're desperately trying to make it sound palatable for the West. Probably, could we discuss extremism for a moment and moderate? I never Please. use those terms. I only use those terms which are found in the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. And extremist and moderate are not found in the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. Those are made-up words by Westerners. There, mm-hmm. And what I use are the words that are, come from the doctrine itself. He's a, he's a Muslim who practices the Quran of Mecca. 
He's a Muslim who practices the Quran of Medina, so he could be called a Medinan Muslim, but he's not an extremist. And what most people call a moderate Muslim is simply one who doesn't apply all the doctrine. The other thing is never discuss Muslims, only discuss the doctrine. When you start discussing Muslims, you've got a one and a half billion people to talk about, and who can bother with that? But when you talk doctrine, you've only got Muhammad and Allah. Yes, that's a good point. Obviously, focusing on the ideology rather than the people. Um, although some people obviously interpret it or, or take it more seriously than others, but I think you're right in that sense of, you know, because whenever something's pointed out, so people will, will walk around and say, "Well, is ISIS?" A, a, could we had the show the other a couple of weeks ago? Is ISIS? You know, is there any foundation in Islam for ISIS? Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah. But now they don't like that. And they go, no, 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 those are not real Muslims. Hey, a real Muslim is, quote, me, and they'll give their reasons why. A real Muslim is the man who follows the Sunnah of Muhammad and the words of Allah. That's what a real Muslim is and has nothing to do with anyone else. Exactly, yeah. And speaking of which, where do you put all the parallels with Judaism? I don't, you're looking for the lecture on uh, comparative religion. It's down the hall, sir. (laughs) <laughs> okay so you don't I, see I, it I, as I, Judaism I 2.0. but having said that it is real clear that when you when i tell if you were a muslim i would tell you i'm a kafir i believe that muhammad was deluded and the quran is a derivative work okay when i say it's a derivative work what i mean is is the great majority of it is found in the in the old testament and the new testament so it'd be fair to say that you don't believe that Muhammad was spoken to by an angel in a cave. I do not. No. Evidence is not evidence is lacking. <laughs> Let's go back to reality a bit. Um, you must have heard of the golden age and the scientific method, Al Haytham, yes. me and all that. What is your take on that? My take on that is is that the Islamic Golden Age looks golden only because they had crushed Western thought. The jihad, once the, the jihad had destroyed the Persian Empire and the uh, Greek, well, the, after the Roman, the Greek, the Byzantine Empire, once they had done the great destruction, uh, for instance, Damascus used to be the center of, of thought for the Western world, for the Christian world. Once that's been crushed and destroyed, why wouldn't it be weak to, in comparison? So what the Golden Age is compared against is the Dark Ages of Europe, and that comparison looks good. However, the comparison is not as good as it appears on the surface. Most people say if he had an Arab name, then he was a Muslim. But this is simply not true. For the longest, for centuries, Arab names were held by those who held them before Islam invaded. Remember, there was an Arab world before Muhammad. And so, therefore, Christianity was in Iraq and uh, in other such places. So, the Golden Age includes Arab names, which which are Jews and Christians who had an Arab name. And the other is it includes some of the great Muslim scholars were basically apostates and their work was never used by Muslims after they died. So I'm not trying to, uh, Islam did excellent work on uh, astronomy. They did excellent work on geography. But by and large, how are you going to do excellent work if your two fundamental premises are there are no natural laws and all authority comes from the, not from experiments. There is no cause and effect, but all knowledge has to come from Quran, Sirah, Hadith. Try running a physics workshop off of that. No natural laws and no cause and effect? Dude, you just destroyed the modern world. And so therefore, the golden age in, in, 
ended with Ghazali's declaration that philosophers were silly and all that counted was revelation. So I don't think that much of the golden age. What it did, it mined the, resource, the reserves of intelligence that were there after the Muslims invaded. But after a few centuries, that all went away. We need to explain the fact that Islam was such a great intellectual powerhouse. How come there's almost no modern scholars who have been given Nobel Prizes who are Muslim? That needs to be explained as well. The other thing about Islam that doesn't give for great science is, is that the Sharia says that Muslims are not to ask difficult questions. Well, as a scientist, let me tell you, the only question worth asking is a difficult question. But, Bill, the Quran predicts the Big Bang. <laughs> well, <laughs> all right. <laughs> what about the scientific method? Do you have anything on the history? Because we get that a lot, that uh, Al-Haytham, he was the origin of the scientific method. What? Yeah. Say that again. Al-Haytham... Uh, a guy, a polymath, also during the Golden Age, I think 11-something, he is the origin of the scientific method because he propagated that you only use experiments and, uh, and data be before you come to a conclusion. I absolutely agree with him. But that, how come it yeah, has not didn't. worked out well today? <laughs> I thought you know about this. Because he didn't. He just said, listen, what we need to do is we need to trust what we experiment with. And that is all he did. And this is not the scientific method. But a no. lot of Muslims are making it to look that way. Okay. And I, was, I felt like, gosh, I've never heard of this guy. <laughs> He's a guy. He, he did a lot in optics. Um, he was the guy. Um, he was assigned the honor of having invented the camera obscura, even though a thousand years earlier the Chinese already had it, the Greeks had experimented it, the whole world had known about it, but he's the guy who invented it. Okay, score one for Islam. <laughs> oh, goodness, yeah. What is the next thing that you're going to be up to? Because um, we, we've taken up an hour of your time. How, how much more time do you have? How about 23 more minutes? Okay, great. 23 more minutes sounds like a good, good there's number. The physicist in you. There's the physicist, 23 minutes. <laughs> Beautiful. I love the business of asking questions, by the way. Then I don't have to think about anything. I just answer the question. Yeah, because, look, I love picking your brain, okay, because you have so much stuck in there where, you know, when, when you are sitting in, in front of the camera, you, you are very strict, very, uh, you know, with a raised um, index finger. And this is why I took this is why I asked, can I liven up the video that you did with the um, what I what I what I like about Islam, you know, things that I appreciate about Islam. And the funny thing is, most people don't even understand it. Most people actually think that this is an homage to Islam. They don't really see the hidden messages in there. This is, this is why this is so funny. This is why this is so great. And this is why I love this video. I love your idea. That's why it's very nice to be able to pick your brain on all these things because you know a lot about all these things. So you, you went and you, you, you went from the idea to a thesis, to then looking for evidence, and then you founded the Institute as such of political Islam, and you are actually being booked by people to give your opinion on this. How much of that is actually happening? How much impact do you have? How much visibility do you think you're getting? Well, I have an impact on the web, primarily in America, but I actually have an impact of all places in Central Europe. 
there's a center for the study of political Islam International. And then Bruno Czech is the founding city. And I have about 100 people who work with me in uh, Hungary, Poland, Slovakia, Czech Republic. And uh, the, did I mention? I mentioned anyway, there's one more there who doesn't immediately come to mind. Oh, Austria and Germany. And mm-hmm. I'm now, I have some influence, for instance, within the freedom parties. I gave when I, st- I come to Europe uh, every year and I give last time I was there, I gave talks to the AFD. Oh, That's terrible. I, and so what I did was I gave them a lecture on the, pro- the use of objective language. Okay. And what I said was, is if we're go- one of the things that a scientist has to do is precisely define his terms. What I find is, is that the discussion of Islam is all with mushy terms like radical, extreme. Well, what do those mean exactly? And so what I did was, is I showed them that if they were going to do anything, they needed to use the proper language because the language has been highly compromised. There's a, uh, it all depends on what the word is means is uh, one of is a famous quote from Bill Clinton when he was under duress for having sex with uh, interns. And so what we need to do is we do need to precisely define our words. And so I gave a talk with that on the AFD. I've also met with the uh, Austrian Freedom Party. And so my influence is not so much in America as it is in Central Europe. Oh, Hungary was the nation I was trying to come up with. Okay. Wow. When I go to Central Europe... Okay, those people are, are now extreme right-wing parties. They're, they're the populist parties, like with Gert Wilders and, and, and Marine Le Pen and this, this kind of thing. So AFD is going back to the good old values of the family where we are going to have more children and generate more German children and not let all those refugees into the country. So this is quite ominous. I tell you what I find ominous is the reports I get in Germany of what's happening. I met Michael Stutzenberger, who's threatened with a six months. now going to jail for six months. Can you believe it? And for showing a historic photo. This is the worst of all. Uh, I've I've mentioned this so people know what we're talking about because I've I've, um, highlighted this uh, last week already. So this is a scandal. This is really, this is... It's an absolute scandal and it's a collapse of our civilization. I've met Michael Stutzenberger. He's a fine man, an intelligent man who cares for, not just for Germans, but for all humanity. He's a courageous man. Can you remind us what happened here? This is where I said this. He's a journalist, and what he did is he, he wrote an article as a reply to a newspaper article in the German newspaper, and he highlighted a, a historic photo from 80 years ago where a, a mufti from, I think it was the Grand Mufti from Jerusalem, where he went and he was greeted by a Nazi um, high-ranking officer. And the thing what happened, the picture shows the Nazi obviously with a swastika on, on his armband. And the funny thing is, the judge told him that he was propagating Nazism by doing that. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing because it's so absurd. Absolutely unbelievable. I wonder what the same judge would think if he read the history books in my office. And when I've read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, does he think yeah. I'm advocating? Okay. My well, word. Well, it, goes, it, goes, it gets worse. This oh, is no. the first part, because the second part is he was put on probation. Do you know what the terms are? He's not allowed to criticize Islam for three years. What's wrong with criticizing Judaism? What's wrong with criticizing Christianity? What's this wrong with criticizing thing. Buddhism? What's, been wrong, what's wrong with criticizing anything? How can, how can a judge in Germany tell a journalist 
They're not allowed to do their work. They're not allowed to do what, you know, what, what they're supposed to be doing. How, how can a judge tell a person how to do their job? That's, that's incredible. And most of all, singling out Islam. He's allowed to criticize anyone else, but not Islam. Well, this is what Sharia law, lo- Sharia law looks like. And what's happening is, is that Merkel, who was a great disappointment to me, uh, I'll, I'll leave Merkel at that. I, I don't understand the woman. There's something uh, I simply do not understand her. Perhaps, but, but you could speak on what you what your thoughts are on uh, the Sharia and the Islamic encroachment on Western civilization. Well, it's here. Let me put it this way: Do you all use the term Muslim Brotherhood in England? Yes, yes. Yeah, we're aware of that. The Muslim Brotherhood is far more dangerous to our civilization than ISIS or Islamic State or Boko Haram or the Taliban or anyone else, Al-Qaeda. There's various forms of jihad. There's jihad of the sword, which is what they practice. Then there's jihad of speech, pen, and money. Those are far more dangerous. And what we see is, is that we're, Islam is bringing out through its work at universities and other such places, it's bringing into bare political Islam, which means you cannot criticize Islam. So this is all part and parcel of the influence of the Muslim Brotherhood. And it is, it is the most dangerous part of civilizational war. By the way, let me praise Muhammad. Muhammad was the greatest military thinker who ever lived. No one dies today because of Alexander the Great. No one dies today because of Napoleon, Caesar. But someone died today because of Muhammad. Muhammad created a form of war which not only includes kinetic war, the war of bullets and bombs, but also civilizational war where the hijab and food and how you go to the bathroom can be used as elements of war. He was the greatest military thinker who ever existed because he went from kinetic war to civilizational war. And what we see is that Europe never is the bullets, the truck explosions, which will happen uh, somewhat over Christmas in honor of the death of Jesus, the birth of Jesus. Those are not the real problem. The real problem is that Merkel won't let Sturzenberger criticize Islam. That's a greater loss than the, 40 bodies that will be stacked up because of a truck plowing through a Christmas village. And what, what, what did you say is, is or what could you offer as some sort of solution? I offer the solutions that our civilization is based upon. I offer you the solution of unitary ethic in which people are treated the same no matter what they are. That is, Muslims and Kafirs in the same courtroom would receive the same justice. That is, we have a unitary ethical system and that we have used critical thought as to advance ideas. It is critical thought that made us great. And now then we're throwing away critical thought and we're letting Islam impose this dualistic ethics, which is how you're treated depends on who you are. A Muslim is treated better than a non-Muslim. And I understand, by the way, that in the police force of England, that this is commonly true. The Kafir gets his chops busted, whereas the Muslim gets a, sorry, dude, we're, we're out of your way now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Over here now, they are policing um, the social media and, quote, hate speech far more than the grooming gangs, for example. Uh, apparently, the grooming gangs that I saw an article again are running still in Rotherham in the place that, may have, that made world headlines a little while back. Um, but the police are far more um, exercised in their chasing of potential hate tweets and so forth. Uh, and this is where By the we way, are, you know, could you explain to me a, this? What is hate speech? Uh, we don't know. We are very puzzled by this as well. And I, what if I say I hate hate speech? Is that okay? Yeah, exactly. It's stupid. And because and hate is whole, emotion. 
this whole concept of hate is stupid. I don't hate people. I don't hate anything, you know? I mean, I hate the people because I was in a hotel in, in Kabul when Taliban attacked it. So those people I hate because they tried to kill me. So, and I think I'm allowed to hate them. But other than that, I don't hate anyone. Well, that's one reason I advocate discussing the doctrine of Islam instead of the Islamic people. Exactly. I stay away from discussing people. Instead, I discuss, here's a concept, I discuss ideas. Yeah, and this is this is what um, Sam Harris said. We discuss bad ideas, and Islam is the mother load of bad ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Harris is a great man. <laughs> what about all these groups? Have you heard of Thousand and One um, Inventions? No. This is a group, also a Muslim Brotherhood outlet, where, which is geared towards scientific experiments, geared towards kids, because what they're trying to instill on kids is that Islam is the foundation for all science. So, this is, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they were very successful. They came to the States. They were in, uh, which was it, the National Geographic in, oh, I can't, in Philadelphia. I can't remember where it was. And they've been very successful going everywhere. They've even been to Holland now. Um, they came short in, in, the, um, in, in Germany because what they do is they go and get money from the governments to put up an exhibition um, showing kids especially because it's, you know, it's a touch thing where they can see things and they propagate Firnas flying his flying machine in Cordoba a, a thousand years before the Wright brothers and things like that. So they're trying to make it look as though all the um, famous things, all the, the useful things in science all came from Muslims. So anyway, so this is, this is one of the outlets. What about other outlets like political outlets like um, Hizbut Tahrir? This is a question from the chat again. What do you think of Hizbut Tahrir? They do a fabulous job. They're a great threat to our civilization. See, I've praised them. <laughs> but basically what they do is, is they teach the real Islam. Well, they, they teach it unapologetically. They prepare all of the groundwork such that to become a jihadi is the next natural step. Very clever, very shrewd, very tough, very reasonable in their own form of reason. But aren't they also good because they do expose Islam and, of course, the to use your term, the Meccan Muslims do not like the, quote, Medinan Muslims exposing it in such a way. And so there's a, seems to be certainly here in the UK, they don't like each other. Well, too bad. <laughs> do, do you try getting answers from Muslims? Like, do, have you ever tried asking a Muslim, do you really believe that ants can talk or that a, a piece of steak can revive a corpse. Have you ever tried taking literal pieces out of the Quran? No, I have not. Usually what I do is I speak to the people who offer to step in front of me and sit down and listen. Uh, I mean, let me give you an example. I did not seek you out. I responded to an email from you. I don't promote myself at all. I simply wait for in my inbox and the telephone to ring. And so my message is somewhat passive, and yet, in spite of that, I have 40,000 followers on YouTube, 40,000 followers on... If I knew how to promote myself, I'd do well. So I don't ask for the audience. The audience asks for me. Have you ever had a debate with a Muslim apologist? Oh, yes. More than once. More than once. I wrote, I've written the only book I've ever known on the subject. I wrote a book called Factual Persuasion, which is how to debate with Muslims. It turns out that it's an interesting thing to do, debate with Muslims, because 
it turns out that there's only a very limited number of arguments for them and against them. And so therefore, once it's an easy doctrine to master. Once you've seen all the arguments, anybody can debate with them. Yeah, this is true. Is that a book that's on uh, Amazon, uh, Bill? Yes, it is. And just for everybody here, for for people who are interested in in looking at the books that you've that you offer, and to find out more than what obviously we've had the short time with you, where can they go for the best information to find out more? Well, I have a website called politicalislam.com. You can buy my books there. You can buy them off of Amazon. Uh, you can buy them off of eBay. Uh, but uh, I write my books to be easy to understand. They're very th- you. I write two sizes of books, which is an odd way to put it. I write bigger books and I write smaller books and the smaller books are, here's what happened. My small books came from, I was at the, I live in the state of Tennessee and I was down at the legislature lobbying about a bill countering Sharia. And so I realized that I was dealing with legislators who didn't know Sharia from sunshine. And so (laughs) I took and decided that I would write them a book on Sharia that they could read and understand. Now, most people believe that Islam is almost impossible to understand, and so therefore, if you give them a book that's 400 pages long, they're never going to read it. I mean, they just won't even try. So I came home from a lobbying session in uh, which a, a senator, state senator said, I don't have time to read all the laws I'm supposed to vote on. So I said to myself, this man will not read a big book. So I came home, called my printer, and I said, how many pages are in one-eighth of one inch? And he told me, and so I wrote a 60-page book because that made it one-eighth of one inch thick. Do you all still speak one-eighth of an inch in England? Not really, no. but I understand anyway. the term now. Okay. Anyway, it's very, it's very thin. I sell them by the tens of thousands. And so I just went to myself, wait a minute. These people want small books. So I then went through and made my Life of Muhammad 80 pages. So I sell the Life of Muhammad in a thick version and a thin version. The little versions outsell the big ones 10 to 1. Wow. Okay, that's interesting. Here's one request, Bilba, and I almost forgot to ask you. Is there any chance that you will in the future, or could you consider um, converting your books into audio books? For me, that is what I'm, and I think, I hopefully I speak for some other people, where you can have it in your iPhone, you're out jogging or walking or doing something, and I can just listen to somebody reading your books off. Is there any future thoughts yeah, on that? Yeah. The answer is yes, that's, in, that's underway right now. We just finished the two-hour Quran, and uh, I, by the way, am the reader, and we are, we are oh. working on the Hadith and the Sirah, the Sharia. So, no, this is all underway. And where will this be available and when? On my website and on Amazon. Available now or next year at some point? Uh, they, they are, they're available now on the website, Political Islam, but they're not yet on uh, Amazon. Perfect. Okay, that, that makes it so much easier because I have bought four of your books and I haven't got through all of them because to sit and read for me is not so easy. I love audiobooks. I just listen to them over and over so that I pick up more each time. So I'm grateful that you have started and obviously you'll continue doing that. So I'll have a look at that. Do you have my email address? Uh, no, I don't have your personal one. So if I could grab that, that will be great. Uh, it's, it's real simple. BWPoliticalIslam.com. Drop me a note and I'll, and I'll give you a copy of two of the books already. Just for free. Fantastic. Thanks so much. I'll do that. And definitely I'll recommend that to other people as well. 
Um, we've sort of come to that time where, you know, it stops. Have you got anything else? Because I, you know, yeah, I, I would just like to mention something. If, Bill, if ever you are bored on a Friday afternoon, please don't hesitate. If you want to do something, just come in here. If you want to bounce ideas off us or something like this, please, you're always welcome to come back here at any time. Just just hit us up and, and you, you can always come and, and watch this and um, put a comment in the show or a question or anything like that. You're always welcome to come and join in with, with your knowledge. So uh, it's greatly appreciated. So I know that you don't like propagating yourself, but um, I can't go and beg you every single week and say, come back, please come back. So, yeah. I tell you what, I'll take you up on your offer. And I'll tell you why. You're easy to deal with. I get interviewed by a lot of people, and there are some people are better than others, sir. Let me assure you. Oh, you mean, geez, shucks, thanks. <laughs> no, you're easy to you're easy to chat with. Well, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on again. We'll definitely have you on again in the future. We won't keep it too long, and if you're available, then obviously we'll do that again. And and, and what I think would be useful in future is maybe have a a topic that we can. Yes, ahead of time that you can you know have in, in your some thoughts on, and then we can talk on a specific topic. Because obviously, I just wanted to get an opportunity, and thanks to Stops and you for coming on to get get your message out there. So politicalislam.com for anybody that's interested in the books and the audio, and I'll be you know looking at that myself. Um, so it's a huge pleasure, and, and thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing with us. Hopefully, we will speak again with you. Very good. I'd like to do that. And by the way, if on the other hand, for instance, something happens and you want to do a, you want to ask me questions about the, what's in the news, if, you know, something like that, let's keep the door so it'll swing both ways. You're free to ask me anytime. Brilliant. Good. Thank you very Thank much. You. I've enjoyed myself. Y'all have a nice day. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that was brilliant. That was really brilliant. I, I love the staccato. I love the quick, easy, straight answers. No pussyfooting around. Brilliant. No, and, and there's just so much knowledge there as well. Um, Bill yeah. Warner, peace be upon you. <laughs> Indeed. No, uh, you know, and that's what appeals to me. And also, I think um, the other thing is he's far less judgmental than many of us. And, you know, he makes you and I look like, you know, yeah. yeah, he's just, he's more of a teacher. I said too. I thought, no. It's <laughs> so true. And I just had a quick look. 26 books he's done now. Um, you know, so people can claim he's not a scholar or whatever. And I'm sure he may not say the word that, oh, I'm a scholar in that way. And, you know, this is the, again, if you listen to him, the, he perfectly demonstrates the Dunning-Kruger effect. Somebody certainly with physics and now, you know, he's, he's been investigating this for 43 years and, and written 26 books, et cetera. Those sort of people go, do you know what? I'm still learning. I'm whatever. None of them will come and tell you how much they know per se in that way. And so, you know, it, it's it's the rest of us. Well, I'll speak maybe for myself and other ignorant people. We tend to say more things, you know, because we're ignorant, whereas the people that have more expertise and more knowledge tend to be, as, as you heard some of his responses there, are more tentative. Um, so well, see, thanks. For, doesn't know. You see, this is the point. The, the good people, the real people with knowledge don't know. So where do we go? <laughs> <laughs> Ali Dawa, he knows. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, that's. <laughs> oh, goodness, this is so funny. Okay, this is, this is brilliant. I love this. And it, it's true. I could also do this like all night and just pick the brain. Thank you very much, guys, for the questions. That was, that was um, very, very uh, constructive, I think. Um, this is good.
No, I think it was excellent. I'll, I'll keep the rest of the crazy comments um, for next week because um, yeah. there was still plenty left there to do. Yes. So, again, I think that brings the show to a close. I think we've done a, a great show. Yeah. Thank you, Stops, for getting hold of him. Uh, we'll have a thought about Pleasure. what we do next week, and we'll look for other people. I'm going to see if I can reach out to to other people like that. He, he mentioned Robert Spencer. I have read a couple of Spencer's book. Again, people like Spencer are maligned as you know Nazi, racist, right wing. <laughs> I tried like, contacting once, but he did not come back. I'll try that because I did speak to I him. Tried once. Ayan, so, uh, I tried a lot of people, but it didn't work. No, and no, maybe it, you know you just didn't catch them at the right time or whatever. I'm sure. Yeah, it's, it's possible. But what is interesting? There's a very interesting comment that he made. I do not go out and and sell myself. You need to come to me. And I think um, this this is true for a lot of people because I've I've brought in people where where people said, "How the heck did you get him on the gin and tonic show?" Well, I was just polite. I asked and I said, "This is what we do. Would you like to contribute?" And there's a lot of respect and there's a lot of feedback from people. Um, who will say, okay, yes, I'm willing to do that because they come on the show and they realize, or they, they look at a couple of samples and they realize that we're not militant or, or assholes or something, um, but that we, we, we try and be objective as possible. And then they will come and talk to us. So if anybody has ideas, it's, it's very easy. People are approachable and accessible and, and you can talk to them. So, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, having sort of Bill and, and the Masked Arab and in the past Aussie and, you know, a few people that some people know that we can pass exactly. on. Exactly. Other Christian people. Prince. Pity that he didn't come on. I mean, I'll, I'll try that option again. I'm just, you know, I'm not sure that he's prepared to come on here. But, come on. So, some people do have a chip on their shoulder, right? Mm, well, yeah. The guy is the Zakir Naik. I, I'm not going to debate you unless you have 10,000 minimum subscribers or something, you know? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Pat, Pat Condell, yeah, that would actually be quite good. <laughs> I might try and reach out to him. I, I don't know whether he's he's up for having that sort of conversation. I think it sounds like he might make you look tame. <laughs> um, I do watch his videos. I don't know if they're scripted or not, but he's obviously quite good. He seems to be able to do it in a single take as well, straight to camera, which is yes, not an easy thing to do. Um, that's for sure. So, um, but yeah, anybody else that's like that, we get on. I'm quite, I quite like Adam Dean on the show. Um, yeah, he, Adam Dean is to me anyway, and stops you. You know a lot more about it. He's, he's kind of. There's two sides to a coin there. Yeah, um, I agree. That's that's what I'm cautious about with that because we'll probably end up having, not necessarily a. It'll probably be more adver, advers, adversarial than it is, you know, what we've had here with with Bill. Um, I'd rather have Majid Nawaz on um, than, than than Adam Dean personally. Uh, so, but you know, we, we'll see what we can do over time. And if anybody knows somebody, because oftentimes we are, you know, Stops and I may not know many of these people. If anybody knows somebody that prepared to get them on, we can send them some sample shows from guests we've had on that they can listen to if they want to to see that you know we're not taking the piss or whatever the case is, and we're not challenging their beliefs necessarily. We want to hear their point of view. Um, then yeah, let us know. Okay. So that's Thank you guys. Have, See you next week. Shall we let that go? I'm, I'm not that fussed about Hadith of the Day, but if you've got one, great. If not, all good. Oh, I can quickly dig one up. Yeah, that's very easy. Okay. Cool. So while Stops is doing that again, we'll be back next week on the Gin and Tonic show on, on the Gin and Tonic channel. And so, if you, again, if you've got any ideas, get, get Donald Trump on. <laughs> I don't think we'd have a particularly coherent conversation, uh, even if we could get him on. 
Um, not that we would ever get him on, but um, yeah. Um, yes, I've asked, asked the Muslims; they don't want to come on. Uh, for them, it's the it's the intellectual battleground of Speaker's Corner because there they can say whatever they like, uh, and they can seemingly get away with it on camera. But coming online, as you saw when I went around with the camera asking who would debate Christian Prince, there's all kinds <laughs> of excuses. So. So people like Saracen and a few other guests we've had, you know, there is credit where credit is due. They come on, they have the conversation, you know, and we're, I personally, uh, and I pretty much, I think I speak for you as well. Stops. We're not here to make people look foolish, but what we are here to do is challenge beliefs. That's the important thing. I don't want somebody to walk away feeling like they've been made to look small. Uh, that's not my purpose. And I'm sure that's not yours either. Um, so it's really a case of challenging the beliefs and you know, might be a bit more blunt, than perhaps they used to, but you know, this is an adult show for adult people. So there we go. Over to you, sir. Sahih Muslim, book 42, number 7058. The world is a prison house for a believer and a paradise for a non believer. <laughs> and on that wonderful note, I think we'll bring the show. Hang on. Did you get the world is a prison for a believer and a paradise for non-believer? The world. It's only in heaven that this then gets reversed. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I, I got that. Which, of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is a prison. This is what life is like. But, but of course, this is what religion has to propagate. Because if, if religion propagates that you could have a wonderful life, well, then, you know, there would be no need to follow rules. And people wouldn't worry about heaven. Brilliant. So it's, it's got to be awful down here so that you can have a <sighs> afterwards. Bye. Thanks so much. Good night, everybody. Thank you, Stops. Thanks to the viewers and everybody in the chat. We'll see you same time next Friday. Good night.